Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Richard Bayliss and welcome to the final instalment of Football Belongs. We thank you for joining us across this podcast series. We've thoroughly enjoyed having these crucial discussions around football's place in Australia and hope you've enjoyed being part of them as well. You can of course go back and read the chapters in the must-read section of the Optus Sport app or on sport.optus.com.au. Keep an eye out for the second season of the Football Belongs video feature series starting in mid-April, which will have episodes on Italy, Albania, Malta, Greece, Scotland, Portugal, Hungary and England. After that, the Football Belongs documentary will proceed what should be a great celebration of football on Optus Sport starting in June with the Euros and the Copper America. That's all to come, of course, for now and for the final time. Here is your host, David Davutovich. Thanks, Rich. Yes, plenty of Optus Sport content to consume for lovers of football. And for those who've been with us all the way through the series, thank you. Now, to quote a passage from John Didelitz's accompanying essay, this series has looked back so that we can look forward with a greater resolve in football's role in Australian life and a greater commitment to ensure it shapes our future. With that in mind, today's podcast guests, and it was a bit like picking the team of the season, three of our all-star contributors from this stellar series, ex-Socceroos and current Yokohama F Marinos boss, Ange Postacoglu from Japan. G'day. Yeah, g'day, guys. Happy to be with you. Matilda's great with 41 goals in 86 internationals and now PFA co-chief executive, Kate Gill. Hi. Good to have you back with us. And also in the studio, broadcaster, journalist and Arsenal and Socceroos tragic Francis Leach. Welcome back. Hello, everybody. Great to be back. Good to be on the team sheet, David. Yeah, you uh, you made the cut well and truly. And finally, the series author, author who will offer a somewhat lengthier intro to 27 NSL games for Melbourne Knights and Sydney United. He then served as FFA legal counsel, Melbourne City football director and PFA chief executive. Now he's CEO of W Sports and Media and an arbitrator for the International Court of Arbitration for Sport. And just to prove his newfound football belongs fame hasn't gone to his head he remains president of his junior club, North Geelong Warriors. John Diddle, a hello for a 10th time. Yes, yeah, survived the poison chalice there. Had a board takeover at North Geelong and was uh, fortunate to survive the coup d'etat. So I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to be here today. Um, it was, um, we do have an all-star cast today. So, you know, we're really excited that um, the way we, we whittled down to three was basically to call everybody who'd appeared and the three people had answered their phones <laughs> got the call up. So thanks, Ange, Francis and Kate. We just happened that we got the three best guests as well. So that was, that was quite fortunate. So really... No, um, don't kid us, by the way, uh, <laughs> JD. Those, those kudo cars are, are very well orchestrated so that you can be <laughs> Yeah, I don't I think... I know how local clubs work, mate. No one's, no one's survived one yet. They're yet, yet to be unsuccessful any kudo tar. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's a good point, Ange. <laughs> It was actually a self-engineered one in hope that somebody <laughs> might actually take the rain off me. But sadly, it continues. It yeah. is one of the longest rains uh, at State League. 
level. Now, uh, John, you're kicking off, uh, as you always do, 10 podcasts and essays covering nine matches and eight distinctly Australian themes. What did you set out to achieve this project series? Yeah, I think it was, you know, fundamentally it was to argue the case that football tells the story of our nation, not as it's presented, but as it actually is, more powerfully, more poetically and more accurately than any other of our culture, cultural uh, cultural touch points. But also what I wanted to do was aggregate some of our most powerful stories in one place. You know, and I did that by threading it through eight themes of Australian life and giving the football fans, you know, one place, one series, one, you know, volume of work where they could dip into and say, here's some stories that mean we don't need to hide, we don't need to filter, we don't need to contort our game and our love of this game in order for it to have a legitimate place within Australian life. And that that's something that a lot of people have added to. And I think we've been successful in that. I mean, we haven't obviously changed mainstream thinking in that regard, but I, I think in terms of being able to argue that case, I think we've done that. Um, the challenge then is how moving forward we can actually amplify the role of the game, ensure that it does take a rightful place in shaping the next century of our nation. Because we did, we shaped the first, we shaped the last century, but we did so without any pats on the back or any recognition. Uh, we need to make sure that we're front and centre. And we'll talk a bit about that throughout this podcast about, you know, fundamentally this need to reset our relationship with Australia. And f- the onus is on football to define what that relationship needs to look like over the next century. Ange Postacoglu, you featured in the Major Events podcast. How have you reflected on the series? Yeah, look, um, I think initially sort of when, you know, JD sort of flagged the idea and, and whether I'd want to be a part of it, I I kind of been on record saying I, I was tired, mate. I was exhausted about trying to sort of analyse Australian football and, and, and the way forward and, you know, it's one of those where I said, well, you know, I, I needed a, a trial separation from the game just to see you know, whether we can both uh, flourish, both me and the game, uh, without me sort of having my input. But I think what's what's come through is that we've got to persevere, not just for what's ahead, but also to firmly establish what's come before us. And, and I still think you know, whilst in this podcast we'll probably, you know, focus on, on the way, the road ahead and how we can sort of entrench, as JD said, the game in, in the Australian sort of landscape is understand that the pillars that brought us to this point are really important and still undervalued and still under-recognised and we keep banging on about them as if it's, um, you know, something that um, we feel neglected, but I think it, it it takes away from the story of the game. It takes away the story of Australia when we don't really um, tell these stories and give them the, the credibilities that, that that they deserve. And also, as I said, to show us the way forward. And, and you know, JD going through the, the sort of different games and the different moments and, and hearing the stories of, you know, your Moriarty's and, 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 and the way the women's game has tackled its own challenges in the game and and the Socceroos history, which we all know really well, but I still don't believe um, is a trench as a pillar in our in our story. Um, those kind of things are, are really important. I think they need to keep – we need to keep persevering in, in telling them. Yep, and I can confirm Ange did go underground for a bit. He knocked me back on a few uh, interview requests. So good to have you back, Ange. That had nothing to do with me going underground, mate. I just – 
may knock on you back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Right, okay, Gil, uh, we heard your views in the Getting Equal podcast uh, episode, along with current and former Matildas Tamika Yallop and Tal Carp and author Fiona Crawford. How do you sum up the series? Yeah, probably just to carry on from Andrew's point there, I think having the history and reflecting on the history and being able to articulate it and embed it in the fabric of Australian culture like JD has done so eloquently, you know, it was a history lesson for myself. A lot of the things I didn't know, so it was good to be able to sit there and read that and also be able to compare it and understand how it shaped who we are and how we operate. That was probably the biggest takeaway from me. I mean, being a female footballer and operating in the female space and being such a strong advocate for that, we were always in the shadows. So be able to emerge and come forward and just see how vibrant and respected the Matildas are at this present stage in time. I think moving forward from there, we can really build on that and champion our women's football as a shining light for Australian football and Australian culture. And JD, how much input... uh Here's your chance to um, to give Kate a bit of a pump oh. up. How much input did she have in the Getting Equal oh, she podcast? Was, look, I've said this previously. I mean, I think she inspired the whole thing. I mean, you're often at arm's length from things that you're not directly involved with, and it takes a special friendship with somebody to open your eyes and, and make it visible. And mm. Kate's journey through football really, uh, you know, really showed me how deeply a lot of women felt about the sport, how it shaped their lives. And her journey was the entire inspiration for me trying to understand why and how the Matildas were such an important part of, of our fabric, you know, and you look, you know, you sort of take a segue into the Matilda stand and, you know, one of the the fundamental tenets of the Getting Equal chapter was the fact that the Matildas took a stand. Ranked in the world's top 10, This year, the Matildas became the first Australian team to win a knockout stage at the World Cup. Should be cleared by Australia, and there it is! The Matildas become Australia's most successful senior team at a World Cup. Now the Matildas are also the first national team in history to go on strike. And that changed things. And that reflected what women have had to do for 150 years. And we're seeing that play out right now. But for these women, these wonderful women who have stood up for themselves and refused to acquiesce to a silent solution to their current issues, that's why we're having the debate we're having now. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that reflected again and hopefully we'll see the same sorts of changes in the political circles that we've seen in football. Francis Leach, we heard some extraordinary tales from yourself and Paul Trimboli in that cultural cringe episode relating to the 81-minute epic between the Socceroos and AC Milan back in <laughs> Who could forget? I just calculated 36 minutes. 36 minutes on my watch. Well, Nine minutes early, I would forget. Nine minutes early? Eddie Thompson doesn't know exactly what's going on. Well, this... I don't think the fans will be too impressed about this. How have you enjoyed the series? It's been wonderful. Just reflecting on what uh, Ange, Kate and, uh, and John have said, I think the importance of this series also is that our sport still doesn't have its own domain in which it can curate its own narrative. We're still squatting in a lot of ways on 
earned media in other spheres that are still somewhat hostile, indifferent, or just don't understand the sport. So the other major codes have their own way of being able to cultivate their their understanding of the, their own history, you know, their own mythology, whether it's real or not. But that's what a lot of sport is, the romanticism of sport, their own understanding of who they are, because there's a constant narrative going on in, in traditional media, online and elsewhere, and other big organisations that are telling that, that builds the culture around those sports and give, gives it a sense of identity. Football is still trying to find a place for that. And I it's reflected in the fact that we're still trying to find a place for the Socceroos and, the, and those mm. games and, and that the A-League still doesn't have a free-to-air television uh, deal of any real substance. We don't have that yet. So we've still got a lot of work to do. But our great advantage is that, as this podcast has proven and what everyone said here, the actual story, the richness of the story, the diversity of the experience, the true face of Australia is within our sport. And that still remains our strongest trump card. And that is something that we should be very proud of and, and should defend fiercely. So the other work has to be done to give it a space where it can really flourish, but the seed is still there. And I'll echo uh, Kate's sentiments. I've learnt a lot throughout this series and I'm a lot prouder to be involved in football, uh, having read these essays and having hosted this podcast series. So uh, thanks, John and Optusport for the opportunity. Now, JD, back to you, just going back to the start of the series and, and looking back at sort of how it's unfolded. Um, What's the biggest surprise that's come out of it for you or the biggest biggest learning? Yeah, I loved, you know, I, I what I really love about the game is the human stories that have emerged. And the one that I really love is that, you know, I suppose I'm a bit anti-establishment in a lot of ways. And I, I love the fact that the, not love the fact, but I, I constantly bemoan the fact that the AFL creates itself as this, um, create this mythology that Francis spoke about earlier about its commitment to Indigenous Australia. And, you know, no, no one can doubt now they do an incredible amount in terms of supporting their Indigenous, indigenous connections. But we saw the hypocrisy, that, hypocrisy of that with the Adam Goods situation where institutionally they couldn't deal with it. Um, but moreover, you compare and contrast the Charles Perkins story, mm-hmm. where Charles Perkins is arguably the most influential Indigenous leader of the modern Australian history. I wanted, first of all, to prove to everybody that didn't already know that an Aborigine has the intellect to be able to stay at a university. And he got his... The catalyst for his reformer's zeal was born out of football. And that's incredible. Like, could you imagine other sports having capture of that narrative? Like, they'd have statues... They would, they would have museums, they would be, they'd have a parade through the city, mate, the day before the AFL Grand Final with a float named after him. Whereas we don't even know that. I mean, we're all football lovers and I didn't know the story of Charles to the depth that I did until I'd read a couple of books on him. So that, I love seeing that connection, being able to draw those dots and that, that's what really resonated with me because I've lived this. I've lived a life where football has been my universe and it connected my, to me to my family. It connected me to my – it defined the relationships I had with my brothers and my brother, my sister, my parents, my grandparents. So for me, none of this was new. But it's how do you actually tell this story where it has a visceral and deeply deep connection to the broader Australian community? And stories like Charles Perkins, for me, tell that. Yeah, you're absolutely right on the issue around the fact that we were unaware of it. And – or a lot of people don't understand the, the resonance of that. Do you think also maybe it's because for too long we've been internally struggling, you know, with the mechanics and the politics of football, the economics of football, that we haven't had time and space to actually uh, 
invest ourselves in our own story because survival, the very survival of the game and fighting, you know, a battle against all the external factors and the competition for sports money when it comes to the Australian Sports Commission and for grounds. I mean, Ange has talked about this endlessly, about the fact that we still are an itinerant sport. We don't have really our own place to call home. All those things have got in the way of being able to actually focus in on the narrative of the sport and what it actually truly means. And this is the first time it's been done as comprehensively as probably it should have been done a long time ago. Yeah, I think there's an element of that for sure, Francis. I mean, this isn't a list of grievances no. from my perspective. This is very much about, again, one of the things I sought to do was to give people a depository of information and of storytelling where we can proudly put our hands up and say, yes, we deserve all that Australia can offer, notwithstanding the fact we're football people. Um, and that was a big part of why we did that. And then, I mean, ultimately, we want to get to the, the stage where it's not a negative to be a football person, where I think at the moment it is. But that starts with us accepting ourselves. Mm. And spoke to it really powerfully on the Major Events podcast when we dismissed Mass Luongo's, you know, nomination as Ballon d'Or nominee, you know. And we need to get beyond that. We need to really have pride in ourselves and rather than necessarily trying to – we need to create our own universe and our own – our own people and our own platform on which to succeed. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Can I ask Angie a question on this then? You sure just can, Francis. Just, it seems to me just reflecting on what John's just said there, Ange, in relation to our own universe, our own understanding of who we are, that it's in a way football is, it seems to me, the way that other cultural pursuits in Australia were 40, 50 years ago. So the film industry, for instance, it wasn't until the 1970s and, and the, the advent of the Whitlam government and investment in Australian film that Australian film was actually valued as something that didn't need to be compared against its American or British counterparts. The same with the late Michael Gudinski and the music industry. We have got the greatest group of, of talent. However, does it really need to become that artists have to go overseas. It's the same what's happened in film in recent years to have that success. On a final note, Sweet Disposition, which I had to release two times to have a massive triple platinum song in Australia, would have never most probably been a hit, except for the fact that it went top five in England first. Now, when you think about that song that will last and last, so many great songs get missed. It wasn't until Gudinski determinedly and very fiercely said, no, Australian music and Australian musicians are as good as anywhere on the planet. It doesn't matter if we're successful overseas. We can love our own music. We can love ourselves. That we actually became a country that was comfortable having our own rock bands that made their own music and it didn't matter if they were number one in America or not. They were number one here. That's all that mattered. And football is, as a cultural mm. artefact is still trying to get to that space. I mean, we're 40 or 50 years behind having that sort of sense of self about ourselves. Yeah. Uh, spot on, Francis, and, and and I always sort of go back to to the point where we we have yet to really understand 
you know, who we are as as a community, as a football community, and as as in a football community in a in a country where ostensibly you start off as an outsider, you accept embrace the fact you're an outsider because you know, I used to tell the Socceroos every camp, I used to tell them the same story of, you know what, you you all started uh, with this dream to be a, a footballer, which uh, when you start with that dream in, in Brazil or in Spain or in Germany, you then, you know, people understand that dream. When you say that in Australia, you, you're already giving yourself a major task because you're going to be on the outskirts of, of what um, the mainstream sporting um, landscape is. And, and we've, kind of lived in that space of an outsider and, and have yet to really affirm what our identity is. And, and if you look at our sport now, what is it? What's, what's football in Australia? Football is an amalgamation of AFL, rugby league, uh, union in terms of format, um, the way the finals, there's no home and away, there's no, uh, there's salary caps, there's a defined season that fits in with everyone else. So it's not really, as you say, it's not really a code on its own. It's kind of a code that's trying to fit in with 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 a nation that has always failed to understand it. So we don't know our own identity and we don't feel proud of our, and we should, because football has a strong identity, as, as we've already discussed, has a strong history, has helped in cultivating the Australia of today. So um, whether it's through the immigrants that came to this country, through the Indigenous Australians, through the women who are now taking the sport to, to another level, that's all contributing to our nation. And we have not been sort of strong enough to, to understand that football is a strong pillar. And we, we know what's right. In, in the way forward. We don't need to look at the other sports here and try and mimic them so that we can get some general sort of acceptance. It's actually it can stand on its own two feet, our football, who we are as people. So, you know, I, I, the personal story of me is that my parents came to Australia in 1970s for, until my dad passed away in 2018. That's 48 years later. You probably couldn't still string a, a sentence of English together. I didn't want to, right? Yeah. Um, but I think he contributed to society. I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of. I'm not, you know, and, and you know, people, I mean, they're talking about having citizenship tests where you have to know English before you get it. I'm going, do you understand the richness of the the people will be excluding in our society if we go down that road. So we shouldn't be ashamed of that. I mean, I was, as a young boy, I tried as much as possible to fit in. I loved Aussie rules. I played cricket in the summer, you know, and that's who I am today. So I christened my, my, my two young boys before I left for Japan, just before I left. And it was a typical Greek traditional, you know, christening. We went to the Greek Orthodox Church and then we went to, to the restaurant after and it was all Greek food and it was all Greek music the whole night and we're all up and dancing and all the people there, the majority of all my friends were all sort of similar Greek Australian wogs who, who, who live in Australia, you know, except for trimmers, but he's virtually a, a, a Greek anyway. And, and, and we, celebrated, we, we, we celebrated the night, you know, we celebrated the night where we've come from but you know what the last song of the night was half a dozen wogs in a circle singing about how we left our hearts to the sappers round case sand now what the <laughs> hell do we know about that but that's who we are you know we yeah. we we that's who australia is and that's what football is football doesn't have to be 
a, a replica or, or a poor imitation of all these other sports. It can be who we are. And football has strong international roots. Yeah, we know what a good football competition should look like. We know what a good football uh, footballer looks like, a good football team looks like. So we don't need to get all this outside expertise from, from other people in Australia, whether it's administrators or TV networks. It does my head in when I hear, you know what, so-and-so TV company wants to give us X amount of dollars, but they need, we need to do it this way. And I'm going, it's not going to work, boys. I can tell you in five years' time, you're going to walk away from the sport because our sport isn't played in summer. It shouldn't have a salary cap. It, shouldn't, it should be home and away. You've got to think about what works. It should have a transfer system. These things work all around the world. Give us, give us the money. We'll produce the product. And we haven't been able to be strong enough to, state, to say that. And because of that, Francis, to answer your question, that's why – um, we're kind of always never really entrenched ourselves in terms of who we are so that people feel confident enough to say, you know what, give them the game and let them show us how this game can take us forward. Angie, is there any vision from this christening? <laughs> uh, none that's publishable. No. <laughs> Kate Gill, you've been sitting patiently. I'm not sure if uh, you've sung K-San in a circle with your <laughs> I reckon she recently, might have. but uh, after a few big nights up with the Matildas, surely. What are your uh, – anything to add on uh, any of the, the previous comments or just some further reflections on, on the series thus far? As Australians, we have a really unhealthy relationship with success and it's always about us going elsewhere to prove ourselves then to come back to reprove ourselves. And Francis touched on that with the, you know, in relation to the arts, even in relation to our, our entrepreneurial community. They've always got to go away to come back to bring it back to us. So I think us, you know, being resolute and having confidence in who we are and what we stand for will bring our game forward. And we continue to kind of churn through leadership and different leaders who have different visions for the game. So we get through halfway through one's vision gets implemented and someone steps out and we reset and we start again. So I think it's, you know, we need some continuities and consistency and a real understanding for how we're going to move forward. Yeah, I think we touched on Kate's point in the, the cultural cringe episode in particular where we unpacked that whole notion of having to go outside of who we are in order to prove ourselves and then come back. So I think that's I think that is, you know, fundamentally I think what Anne said is hits the nail on the head around our need to define ourselves as and reset our relationship with the nation so that we do it on our terms. And a big part of that for me in terms of moving this forward is we need to determine what we think as a sport can help shape Australia for the better over the next century and play a, a role of some agency and a role of leadership in that regard. And I think unless football can do that, it's going to continue to be this Frankenstein's monster of Australian sport, which is, as said, bolting together bits and pieces of things that might or might not work in Australian sport that the mad scientists might create in the lab somewhere and then unleash it on an un, unassuming Australian public. We need to move beyond that. We need to reset that relationship so that we're strong, positive, clear in who we are, what our identity is, and as Ange said, then do the hard work of getting somebody to fund that. And as we might discuss later on, I've got no doubt that the game has the energy to deliver on that promise. Wonderful segue. Uh, we've had some reflections and no doubt we'll continue to throughout this podcast, but we want to take it forward now. So projecting forward, John, as you've uh, argued in this Football Belongs series at First Century, football's been seated at the intersection of Australia's defining cultural threads now. And if we are to thrive into the next century, football's agenda must be ambitious and transcendent. John, what does that look like? 
Yeah, that, look, that's a big question. I mean, I, I don't have a clear vision of what that you know specifically looks like, but I think there's a couple of dynamics that I wanted to draw to your attention. One of the things that I put in the essay that accompanies this is this notion of a, um, a temporal compression, the slow cancellation mm. of the future. And I love this concept of the future is just a repack. The future we're living in now is just this repackaged past. And we need to be able to move beyond that. And the analogy I use, and I'll bore the hell out of you for 30 seconds, <laughs> is Marty McFly in Back to the Future. And, you know, remember him in 1985, goes back to 1955. <laughs> Plays an unbelievable guitar solo. Crowd just stands there, open mouth, going, what the hell was that? I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. All right, but that was you know, that was taken from Van Halen's debut album in 78, so 23-year differential, okay? If you take any song from today and plug it into 1998, no one's going to bat an eyelid. Bat an, no one would even know. If you stitch that song in, no one's going to go, oh, what the hell is that? Okay, it'll just be as part of the Orthodox playlist. So it, it speaks culturally that we're not actually making these big avant-garde steps forward. We're actually just trying to repurpose, repackage things that have happened in the past. And for Australian football to actually step ahead of the wave that consistently crashes down on it, it needs to project itself forward. It needs to think about what a future might look like without having a reference point, you know, sometime 23 years behind us. So... That's the big thing for me. Let's identify as a sport, what are the emerging issues of Australian life over the next century? Let's try and identify those and let's see how we can position position ourselves as a progressive leader in those areas. You know, and I, I hesitate to use the word progressive because it has this political connotation, but we need to, you know, through sp- sport has this capacity to cut across partisan political lines, which is something that's really bogging down society at the moment is this polarization that exists and sport for better or for worse you know it can be deployed you know in support of quite heinous propaganda at times but for the most part it can play a an apolitical role in progressing important social agendas so i think that's what foot, the role that football needs to play identify these important areas and see how football can once again help australia become a better nation francis is our resident music guru we've got to throw it to you <laughs> love eruption Great track. (laughs) Van Halen's debut album. It's fascinating you talk about that. I think what what you're talking about is if I was to identify what the, the big opportunity is, is that we're living more and more isolated even as our cities get bigger and we live more pressured lives and we're under, you know, we're living in higher density environments and whatnot. But technology and the shift in the work-life balance that we have where people are working from home more now because of what's happened in the last 12 months with COVID-19 is that community is harder and harder to find and people are losing the thread on, on what their community looks like and about their responsibility to actually participate in community because the only way community, whatever community you're part of, actually thrives is if those who have a stake in seeing it succeed actually participate in it. And and we know this from the level of sports membership, whether it's people volunteering to be part of sports where the kids – 
uh, are participating in. Often sport now has become a drop-off a drop off point for, for kids. It's a babysitting centre for some parents who are so time poor that taking their kids to training is to pick them up and drop them off and they're not involved. So what we need, what I think the opportunity is, is to actually make football, it's already got the foundation, Steve, but you're a president of your local football club, John. And of course, you know, everyone in this room has had a relationship with a football club of that nature, um, is to make that our greatest strength, that football in its diversity, in its universality, it's the, it's the international language that everyone speaks with their feet, is a community that they belong to, is somewhere that they can actually participate and be part of, is somewhere that they can play a sport that everyone understands and they feel like it's their sport. That, for me, is a great opportunity, particularly as our cities get bigger and uh, it's harder and harder for people to connect. If we can make football central to those communities, then we've got half a chance for the game to actually become, you know, what we know it already is, but to really embed it in uh, a a next generation of Australians who are, are looking, they're aching for community. I think people really want to be part of communities. They do. I think we've just lost the art, Kate, of finding out where they are. Yeah, no, I tend to agree with you on that. And I think one of the the points to move that forward is for football and our football communities to become more welcoming and Mm. accessible and visible as well. They need to be a safe place for people to, as you said, bond with each other, create a sense of purpose. So I think being able to, to open that up and, you know, be welcoming to all, all disparate people, I think is exactly what we need to be doing. And you touch on a lot of these themes in the Football Belongs video series, which uh, Richard Bayless teased uh, earlier or at the start of the episode. But I uh, just want you to uh, expand on some of the comments made from uh, from these three in the studio. Yeah, look, uh, well, for me, the sense of community was what was paramount in, in my love of the game because – you know, like JB said, football was the the thing that, that brought me close to, to to my father and, and all my relationships, um, even my adult relationships now, all my friends have all come from football. So it was that sense of community that that Francis talks about. And, and uh, I think, you know, because of the situation over the last sort of 12 to 18 months with, with COVID around the world, isolation... Um, has become more prevalent in, in all in all aspects of society because now it doesn't matter how much money you have or access the ability to travel or the ability you can't do it and, and you and you you understand all of a sudden it's become really stark who your community is and there's an opportunity there I think for football to be that conduit not just domestically but when you think about the Women's World Cup, it's not that far away. And I don't know how much the world is really going to change between now and then in terms of, you know, freeing up international travel and whether people have become comfortable in isolation that, you know, there's an opportunity to open up the world again, you know, to, to for Australia. And, and Australia can only grow as a nation if it is open. And football, unfortunately, has fallen into the trap of, in the past, of a exclusion. Uh, as much as we like to say we're a diverse, the most diverse sport and a multicultural sport, we've always put up barriers in everything we've done, whether that was with our local clubs, whether that was with, in junior football where, you know, we needed elite competition because not everyone could play. We not only wanted the best to play and the best had to play against the best. And then we started charging fees and, you know, then we created a league where there's no promotion or relegation because we only wanted a certain part of the community. So we've been really good at excluding um, 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 sort of aspects of the community, whereas our strength lies in the fact that 
everyone can play the game. Everyone can love the game. Doesn't matter what your background is. And that's where, again, it's understanding who we are and, and being comfortable and not afraid of opening our doors up and saying, well, you know what, we're, 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 we are a big church. We will allow everyone in because the love of the game can create so many other things beyond just the enjoyment of the sport. And football is the only one that can do that. Mm. Um, it's, I love every other sport. I'll keep saying it. You know, if you grow up in Melbourne, you, you, you're almost forced to, to appreciate what other sports are. But you know what? The only sport that I've, people, that I've heard people say they hate is football. And that's a strong word, you know. Who hates a sport? I don't like a lot of sports. You know? yeah. There's a lot of sports I won't watch, not many, but who hates a sport? And the reason they say hate, it's not that they hate the sport. They hate the, what's attached to that sport at the moment, and that is that it's some sort of thing that is not representative of who Australia is, and it's actually the the abject opposite of that, and we're, we're afraid to say that. That, that. That's a great point, Edge. I mean, one of the points that we make – through this is that, yeah, the history of Australia is one of this colonial thread. And that's been this invisible hand that shaped the nation in so many ways. And it's too often characterised by, you know, exclusion and ongoing delegitimisation. So a lot of the people, and I, you know, to chuck Johnny Warren's book in there, Schiller's Wogs and Poofters, you know, they, they, these are the groups who aren't, haven't been empowered, who haven't been enfranchised um, or haven't been franchised and not, who aren't authentically embedded in the nation. And that's why Johnny made the, insisted that be the title of his book. Um, and at some point we just need to take ownership of that. Um, could I touch on Dave, just a couple other points that were raised by Andrew, which I liked is, you know, one of the points that you raised that I think is going to be a big theme over the next 20, 30, 40 years of Australian life and global life is income inequality. And nothing I think will divide the community more so than that. And that'll happen by osmosis over time. And we're already seeing that now impact on our football where we have, you know, Ange touched on the exorbitant fees people are being asked to pay in order to participate in the game. And, you know, this commodification of children has cultivated a user pay structure and that cuts access to the game to our most critical talent pool, which is the sons and daughters of immigrants. You know, the, the same kids that, you know, galvanised the nation in 2006, the same kids that were dropped in a Vietnam war zone in 1967, they're the same kids now who we're dialling out of the elite levels of Australian football. So here's that. Here's our ability as a, as a sport to be a leader and say, you know what, this is going to be a real issue for families, for the community, and the next generation. How is football going to deal with that? How are we going to structure up so that we can actually become a model for how different sections of our culture can deal with this growing income inequality? And particularly at a time when, Kate, women's football is emerging and getting, achieving its rightful place within the sport and the wider culture. To have that happening at the same time, that income inequality that you talk about, John, uh, is is becoming more prevalent and that disposable income is disappearing, that young girls are going to see the promise of the Matildas and then be denied an opportunity to do what Ange talked about, to actually chase their dream to become one because it's too expensive. Yeah, no, exactly right. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a, a minority but a privileged minority and I had those experiences, had those exposures, but there's there's other people out there that are less fortunate than I than would have the opportunity to be involved in football due to the way that it's priced at the moment. Can I just pick up on what you talked about there too? I think the biggest tragedy that could befall the game is that it becomes solely a pay-to-play middle-class game. 
that will rob the sport of, it, of its character. I will be honest, I think it will rob the sport of the sort of resilience it's had to have to actually survive and has brought the, the best moments of the game at an international level has been the resilience that's come from, from, from learned experience of people having to fight for their for their place in the world. I mean, Ange instilled it into his teams in many ways, his Socceroos teams, to understand that. If we have a, a, an academy-driven elite-level football that j- delivers you know, kids who become professional footballers with no life experience or no exposure to any any challenge, then the game is going to struggle. And this is before we even touch on the Indigenous community, isn't yeah. it? Which is where we very much could find our next superstars. Yeah. Ange? Yeah, I mean, uh, the... the the biggest sort of travesty you can you can um, sort of inflict on any community is the denial of opportunity, um, and that's again where you know, football has to be um, really careful in, in in how it sort of moves forward because the 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 whole emphasis and the whole understanding of what elite football looks like and what it should look like and how we get to that space and produce more world-class players. Um, Understanding that the number one way to produce world-class players is opportunity beyond anything else. Because um, from my perspective, still the best football factory in the world is the poor areas of Brazil. And that's because everyone plays the game and there's no academies and there's no fees and there's no you know, um, structured um, curriculum. It's just kids playing the game. And that's not to say that there isn't a place for that because I've said the word curriculum and I know people are going to go flying off on a, a different tangent. <laughs> what I'm saying is that opportunity is 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 what creates world-class players. Opportunity. Because if you have a 1,000, 2,000, 2 million kids playing the game, irrespective of the quality of what they're doing, you will produce world-class footballers. If you shrink that to to 10% or 1% that can afford to play, then you're going to produce less. So opportunity, and our game should be able to afford that opportunity to, to through community, through community, should be able to afford that opportunity to every boy or girl who wants to play the game. Let's drill down into some specifics from your essay, John. You touch on football's infrastructure deficit uh, caused by a century of being an outcast. You you touch on uh, the potential for the building of community courts. Uh, You touch on the struggles of the First Nations people and uh, what can potentially be done moving forward in that space. You touch on human rights uh, and the Women's World Cup, which offers Australia limitless scope. Um, If you want to just drill into some of the the specifics of those uh, as we project forward, yeah, before I, I launch into that, uh, David, um, one of the, this is how we actually reposition the game so that we can be, you know, not that we haven't been successful. I think we've been successful in a range of ways, but where we where we can start transcending our current lot, and that's you know, Johan Cruyff's been a big inspiration for me personally. Just seeing the way he thought and the way he was a genuine visionary in how football needed to be played, but also its role in building communities. You know, we saw that through the Dutch, his work with the Dutch. We saw it through his work at Barcelona. And one of his sayings was every advantage has a disadvantage. And um, Malcolm Gladwell unpacks that in his book called um, David and Goliath. And some of the things that Ange touched on earlier was things, thing about how we're different to everyone else, you know, and that's what we need to embrace because we're not anchored to some legacy. We're not anchored to, you know, the heroes of yore. We're not anchored necessarily to a history. We can actually we're unencumbered to shape what our future might look like 
without too many barriers. And that that's a really wonderful position to be in. So the question for the game is how do we actually use that now? How do we, whilst being at this significant disadvantage um, in relation to entrenched institutions, how do we as an underdog think differently? How do we adapt? Um, how, do I, how do we throw away the old rule book and reinvent ourselves for the future? And that was really underpinned my thought process on what these sort of key initiatives might look like. What can we do ties together being the underdog being able to be a, a face of what future Australia might look like, but also have some interest in positioning the game for the future. So some of the things we discussed was, you know, I'll probably throw over to Kate on this one too, um, is when I looked at gender equality, one of the things that struck me most was the different faces that were impacted differently in that movement. And it was a movement. They called it the feminist movement for a reason, is that they were trying to progress social issues and, and it wasn't simple. Because you had so many different people drawn from so many walks of life, seeking different stages of progress at different speeds. And that's very much football. You know, there's so many different cultural communities. There's so many different faces that constitute our, our community that it's really hard to have a one-size-fits-all approach to what the game needs to look like. So I think the first tip is, okay, just don't try and constrain us. Don't try and build a framework or an architecture around the game that again is this Frankenstein's monster or has to fit into a specific paradigm. Let's actually be ourselves and unleash it a bit more rather than just, you know, try to have a, a prescribed model for how the game's going to be managed. Yeah, no, I most definitely agree with that. And I think especially around the women's game, like we're coming from a long way back. So any progress and opportunity moving forward is is such a great thing. And the biggest thing that we've talked about, JD, a lot is, you know, transitioning the women's game to be shaped and felt like the men's game you know we have to give it its own space its own room to breathe and we have to appreciate it for what it is and we have to understand that it needs to have its own platform and its own framework that shoots that suits how it's going to grow and evolve along the journey it's your sense kate that it's developing that pathway to having a really independent identity that isn't sort of secondary to men's football or or dependent on the sort of the model of men's football yeah most definitely i mean what we've got is we've got a clean slate so we can talk to the players and engage with them and work out how they want their framework, their model, you know, their careers to be shaped and look and feel. And, yeah, I, I don't think we need to make the same mistakes that we have with the men's game and just treat the women's game exactly the same. It, it's got its own space. It can grow, it can develop, and it can have its own framework. Yeah, and that's really important because that, for me, the, the underpinning anchor for that is this notion of self-determination. And I think that's a really important theme for so many different communities is, you know, you have this model of, you know, you see it happen all the time with Indigenous programs is let's just, a few white guys in Canberra, let's work out exactly how this is going to happen. Or, you know, the FA or the AFL, whoever it might be, okay, this is going to be our Indigenous program. Hey, how about you actually let them decide how they're going to do it? For without Aboriginal people in Australia in a suitable and equitable position in Australian society, there is no future for Australian people either. The both the two things have to go together: the advancement of Aboriginal people with the advancement of the Australian nation. And that that, that same lesson applies to football and this notion of self determination and resetting our relationship with the game. You know, and I'll talk about this more in the women's World Cup context. But you know, we're, we're bringing the world to Australia. We're we're bringing the we're bringing Australia this most magical event that you'll ever experience. And the net net benefit to the game might be zero, 
And the benefit might be to the AFL stadia and the rugby league infrastructure and tourists, you know, hotels and other, you know, businesses who've got no vested interest in pouring money into football whatsoever. Yet these people are the beneficiaries of soccer's global reach. So we've got to, you know, when we're bringing a World Cup to Australia, we need to be very clear. Here are the terms. We're going to bring you the World Cup. We're going to bid for the World Cup and we're going to bring it here. But you're going to build this stadium for us. You're going to run it this way. You're going to do this on our terms, not the other way around. And if you go back to the 20, the bid that we did in 2010, 2011, that was totally on the terms of the institutionalized mainstream. You, you, we were actually building and investing in the AFL more than we were football. So that's part of that resetting, Kate, when this, this notion of self-determination is let us determine what we think our future needs to look like. Now, we're doing you a favour, Australia. And we've seen that play out now through the MCG, Adelaide Oval, mm. uh, Perth Oval and the unavailability of those stadiums for these World Cups. And then all of a sudden, when the venues get announced, uh, we see on the, the headlines uh, in the newspaper saying uh, the, the MCG's uh, been overlooked for a World Cup venue. Well, no, the AFL actually said that we can't have those venues. Oh, that's the, just poor events. journalism by lazy people who don't know how to do their job, David, who write that stuff. Journos, don't write the headlines. <laughs> no, I think the other thing there, John, Jody, which you just triggered for me was the sense of when we, you know, we built the W League and we had such a great product starting it off and then, you know, the Matilda strike, which was then the catalyst for the AFLW to start getting into action and all the other sports, we had this kind of flow-on effect that then we just kind of stood still and we watched everybody else pass us by. So that completely resonated me with, with me then when you said we've got such a showcase event coming to this country and we really need to make the most of it. We need to put the steps in place to make sure that when it comes, we're ready for it. But then we may need to make sure that, that the glow and the halo effect that comes off the back of it, that we keep moving forward and just don't stand still. Okay. Well, let's just put where the rubber hits the road here when it comes to politics. And I work in that space these days. So I know a bit about how this mm-hmm. goes. We need a champion. We need people who are prepared to put their uh, stick their chins out a little bit and actually walk the corridors of power and get results for us and have a unified vision of, uh, and the ability to actually uh, prosecute a narr- narrative and a case within those areas where decisions are being made to get results done. It's one thing to wish it into into um, existence. It's another thing to actually execute it. And that takes uh, a discipline and uh, a shared vision and a commitment to uh, an outcome, which I don't know, Ange, have we got faith in the game yet that we can actually have a shared vision amongst all the stakeholders who matter most, who could actually see through a, a dividend that will leave the next generation of Australian football people with a better place? Mate, you, didn't, you missed a bit when I said about a trial separation. That's, that's what drove me to it. Look, what I will say is that there is passion in in football people in our country to lead this forward and 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 get some common ground for us. But we're just so great at infighting. So I, I wanted to jump in on, on on before what on what Kate was talking about with the W League. Right, I, it wasn't that long ago. I remember I read this this sort of epitomised the football community for me in Australia. There was two headlines, not two headlines, two stories almost running concurrently. The biggest problem in the A League is that all of our best players are playing overseas and we didn't have enough good local talent. Right next to it was the biggest problem with the W League is that now we're losing all our women to go overseas and that's going to affect the quality of, of, of the league. Not understanding that the reason we had our golden generation was that they did go overseas. Our local competition thrived with more opportunities and that's how we're you know, the women's game is going to grow. 
But then we put it on as a negative sort of impact. So instead of saying it as a positive, you know what? All of a sudden, our girls are being uh, uh, courted by the best clubs in the world. What a massive advertisement that is for the W League. Let's tap in on that. That We saw that as a negative in the W. And then the A League were saying, well, we're not getting enough players now going to the overseas club. <laughs> We've got, we don't have any uh, players playing in the top clubs around the world. And that's where we get totally... Um, sort of befuddled within ourselves and not understanding that these two things that we're sort of trying to figure out ourselves and, and tying ourselves into knots, that's the strength of our game is the, the opportunity that exists for boys and girls to play in the top leagues overseas, the opportunities that that creates for, for the competition here, the opportunities that will never exist in any of the other female competitions and male competitions, the majority of them that are played here in Australia. So, do we have people? Yes, we do, Francis, absolutely. I have a lot of faith in people in the football community. What we need to do is, as you say, stand up for ourselves, get some real political influence. As I said, the next person who wants a photo with Sam Kerr, a politician needs to pay a price for that. That has to be something tangible. It can't just be that, you know what, we love this World Cup and we love the Matildas for this period and then that's it because the way we're going to create, and, and Richard Hines, you know, it, it was interesting when I heard, he's obviously done a lot of work and he said that, that sort of a legacy doesn't really exist in real terms. And I kind of understand where he was coming from, but I think in football terms, we can create legacies, football legacies that are bricks and mortar, that will create more opportunities, that will help, A, grow the game, but more importantly, um, give society... Uh, sort of a, a clearer path forward as to what we can look like as 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 a nation. Righto, you get the keys to the Australian Football Castle. Uh, you cut out all of the other stakeholders. You've got full control. Your objective is for football to become successful, mainstream. What are the things you do in the short, medium and long term, starting with you, John? Well, it's a big question. I'd announce, David, to just throw on me. Um, I'd look... I'd, you know, it's really interesting looking at all these things. Uh, I look, you know, one of the big things we lack and have lacked historically is our ability to have influence within political circles. Now, that's mm-hmm. a total function of the way soccer's been le- delegitimized for well over a century. We haven't been able to transcend that. One of the, you know, when will we ever have a, you know, sports minister or the head of the Australian Sports Commission or Sport Australia who's a genuine football fan? who actually knows the game, who understands the ecosystem, who understands how it works. That's never happened because people like us don't tend to be elevated into those positions for, for whatever reason. So I think that's a really important element to this is our ability to you know, get people in those sorts of roles. Mm-hmm. And that's not a simple one. You've got to identify the right people and actually push them and develop them and nurture them so they can actually take, when they get an opportunity to be in those positions, they so, can succeed. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt, JD, but we haven't even done that in football let alone in outside football. The, the the leadership positions in our own game <laughs> haven't been held by football people. Yeah. So that's where the problem lies. How's it how has the outside community gonna have confidence in us when every time we've looked for some sort of leadership, we've gone somewhere else. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's it. Look, the first, yep. the first point, you know, I think the, the fundamental first point to all of this is we need to, before we can convince the nation of our bona fides, we need to convince ourselves and we need to conv- convince 
ourselves of football's place in Australia. 100%, Ange. I, I couldn't agree more. And until we do that, we can't actually move to the next objective. Mm-hmm. Francis Leach or Chairman Francis Leach, what would you do? Well, obviously the very first objective, and it's coming up very quickly on our radar, is to run a successful, brilliant Women's World Cup. And that is to showcase the game in a way that uh, this country has never seen before, which will give you the leverage then to actually walk those corridors of power a little bit taller. So we've now committed to a World Cup. We need to, in partnership with FIFA, deliver the most outstanding event this country has ever seen. Um, And the beautiful thing about the Women's World Cup, Kate, having been to the most recent one, is it's in a really sweet spot at the moment. If the the Men's World Cup is over-commercialised, a little bit remote from fans, a little bit hard, you know, unless you've got, you know, it's it's so big, it's brilliant, but it's so big that it can be a little bit overwhelming, a little bit sort of um, detached, a little bit sterile. The Women's World Cup has still got that tangible sense of community about it. There's something sensationally authentic about it. Being at the final of the Women's World Cup in Lyon uh, a year and a half ago was one of the best days out I've ever had because it was a major event, but it had a sense of community. And what I felt from that was was really unique. And so we've got a chance to bring all those elements together that we've talked about, about the strength of the game, its diversity and its connection with community to the fore. So we've got that's the first thing we've got to get right and make sure that that works for us. The next thing that I would do is to have the difficult conversation about defederalisation of the sport. Because what we've got in Australian football at the moment is seven or eight silos of power with duplicated infrastructure when it comes to bureaucracies that uh, provide little centres of, uh, of, uh, you know, of conflict and, and, and roadblocks to actual real achievement and advancement of the game. It's a difficult conversation, but my feeling is that most of the big sports in Australia that have federated models that have sort of run on the basis of what used to be the old Olympic model that you've got, you know, seven, you know, state federations and then the national body and then you pick an Olympic team and, and off you go, are falling behind. Rugby union, falling behind. Cricket in its own way hangs on because it's so big, but even that is losing its power and it has lost market share, particularly when it comes to test cricket, because of that federated model. It's no longer a dynamic way to run a major sport. Now, it's obviously very difficult to get that right because you do have that problem when it comes to looking after the grassroots and people within those communities having control of the game and then the bigger picture of a national a national approach to the game. But somewhere in there, there's got to be a model where we can do that and that we can get rid of these roadblocks and these power centres which are just detrimental to the game. You know, I wasn't involved in what happened with Heather Reid being removed from the, from the board of, of um, the FFA recently. But what I can say is that Football New South Wales has a million-dollar-plus debt. And the fact that the people at the head of Football New South Wales spent their time and energy having a board fight over over the, the bona fides of one particular individual over what seemed to be an exchange of words with, with no real consequence, it just does my head in that that's the way that people running our sport are spending their time and energy. It's not good enough and it's got to change. Kate? Yeah, I agree with everyone, but probably going back right to the start there, I think, and I'm going to borrow from Jim Collins, um, it's all about having those level five leaders in the space, which is exactly what we need. We need people that care about the cause and the movement, not about themselves and their self-interest and their agendas. I think that's the only way that we will really change things. Mm-hmm. Ange? Mate, I just think don't flinch. Like this, I've got no doubt we'll have an unbelievable FIFA Women's World Cup because Australia always holds fantastic events and it always embraces. But when we go in there asking for what we deserve, whether that's Women's World Cup, whether that's the next TV rights deal, 
don't flinch. Don't just take what's given to you because you're worried that you might not get nothing. Believe in yourself. And and we haven't done that. We've, we've too often just um, – and, and, and it's not always about finances. Um, it's not always about – I know we've always sort of been the, the, the poor – relative in, 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 in the sporting landscape in terms of funding. I get all that, but for us to make a leap forward is we can't flinch. We've got to believe in something. We've got to believe in who we are as a, as a code and, and believe that we can deliver on what we say. So that, like I said, whether it's a FIFA Women's World Cup or it's the next TV rights deal or it's the way the A-League and W-League are structured, when, when, we, when we have a clear understanding of what that is, back it to the hill. Don't dilute it just because you're worried that we might not we might not get what we want. Just don't flinch at that moment. And we've flinched too often. Too often we've diluted or watered down what we really want for this game. I think everyone knows what we want for this game. I think everyone understands the power of the game and what it can become. But whenever it comes to the crunch time, we've flinched. Most of the time we've flinched because the people in the room don't really believe in the cause. They don't really believe in the game. Um, they're there because they're serving a, a, a term and are doing the best for they think for their term in that game. And then they go on and, and, and serve, whether it's another sport or another industry. Um, you need people in that room when those big decisions are made to, to sit there and not flinch and make people believe. Um, you know, for me, it's it's as a coach, it's like walking into a football club with a billionaire owner and he wants to pick the team. If you let him pick the team, the first thing that's going to happen or the nearest thing that's going to happen is you're going to be sacked within the next six months. You've got to sit there in that room with a billionaire, and I've done it, and say, no, hey, look, you put the money in, I'll make the decisions. I'll, I'll cop the flack if it doesn't work out. You get all the plaudits if, it, if, if it's successful. And that's what we've got to do as a code moving forward with all these things because they're all great opportunities as I see them. But they'll be missed opportunities if once again – we flinch, and I, I hate the word. I know JD used it. I hate the word mainstream. I don't understand ma- mainstream. I've never been part of mainstream. I know Francis has never been part of mainstream. When I think about you know the way he's conducted his journalistic career, he's he's always been trying to do something different. Kate, by by becoming a female footballer playing in Sweden, playing overseas, we've all done things that have been outside the mainstream. That's what makes the the game unique. So let's bring them to us rather than us trying to go into them. Yeah, no, that's – look, I agree. I think it's – you know, that fits into what my sort of concluding view should be is the first is we've got to have the courage to reset our relationship with Australia on our terms. And the only way we can do that is to bring the same sort of gusto and energy and that Ange outlined then. And the second for me, the key thing is to connect the game to our vision of the best possible Australia. If we can't do that, then we don't really have a role mm. to play. Then we're just a sport and we can go on and play at our clubs. But unless we anchor what it – unless unless we can anchor um, football's destiny to that of a better nation, then I think we're wasting our time. But the beautiful thing about that right now is that that's a Greenfields opportunity because in the wider scheme of things, there aren't too many organisations or leaders actually doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, that, that, is, that is a space that is there to be occupied with a good story and a good narrative and a sense of hope and a sense of belonging because right now we don't have that. So why not make it ours? J.D., I just wanted to touch on something you referred to in the essay when you talk about uh, football's diversity and 
I'll, uh, I'll read an excerpt from here. The way we engage with the game is so varied that at best it places barriers in the way of cohesive progress or at worst makes it chaotic, uh, chaotically ungovernable. And then you expand on the fact that it appears impossible to align the interests of uh, the varied football fans. And you reference the suburban soccer mum and the international student obsessed with Ronaldo and a <laughs> South American ultra wanting to dance to a, a samba beat. Um, can you just expand on that a little? Well, you said it yourself, David. I mean, try, what, what common thread exists between those three, group, three groups of people? Zero. There's nothing. There's nothing that bonds those three people together other than football. Mm. Okay? Nothing. So football then has to mean something. It can't just be a pastime or a way to kill 90 minutes. Mm. Okay? And how do you do it? You anchor that to a vision of a better Australia to say you're a part of our family. You're contributing to nation building. You're contributing to something that will help Australia's agency in the global stage. And that's what the common thread between those three people is because they all want to be part of something. They all want to be part of building the best possible version of Australia. Fantastic. All right, let's get your final observations from this uh, wonderful podcast finale. Uh, We'll start off with you, Francis. Uh, It's been an invigorating conversation and a wonderful series, so congratulations to everyone who's been uh, behind it, John. The essays are just wonderful. Uh, I texted you this morning, the first chance I got to – uh, read the, the final essay and it just made my heart sing because it says to me all the things that I love about the game and it's it's been reaffirming to be part of this conversation and, and despite all the challenges the game faces that it has this inexhaustible reservoir of passion, ideas and uh, and a sense of goodwill. I think that we want the best for the game and everything that's been talked about here has not been about money or ego mm-hmm. or personal opportunity. It's been about what the game can be for the wider community that we love. And if we keep that as our, the cornerstone of why we're in the game uh, and why we love it, then I think we we have a real opportunity to succeed. I, I don't know what the timeline's like, but um, I, I still believe that it, as John has written, it is the best possible version of the face of Australia. And I want that to be, you know, something that's a legacy that we pass on to future generations. And I know Ange with his teams and the way they played, the way he sent them out there, had that DNA in it. That was the mm-hmm. best possible vision of Australia and what Australian character and values could represent. And I think we can try our best to try to replicate that and how we are the guardians of the game. Kate Gill. Yeah, I just wanted to thank JD for actually putting the thought and the time and effort into this. I know it's been a a labour of love and a project of yours, but it's been really quite remarkable to watch you pull it all together. I mean, the stories are just fantastic. As I said at the start, I I learn a lot, but be able to see how the fabric of our nation is intertwined with football, it just makes me even more passionate about the game that I love. So thank you for doing that and sharing it with us. Ange Postacoglu. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'll take the opposite view. I, I hate JD who's dragged me back into Australian football again. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it was quite, it was quite an amicable separation for a while there, and, and, uh, and I had, uh, I had less, uh, less headaches. But um, you know, I, it's just, you know, I think. What really resonates is that when people um, tell their stories, whether it's, you know, the way sort of JD has articulated the history of the game, but even the way he talks about his own personal sort of um, interactions with the game, what it means to his life. uh, I know when I talk about it, about myself, there's so many people who understand because it's, it just mirrors their upbringing. And, um, you know, it's such... Like I said, it's such such a ingrained part of our DNA 
what the game has given us beyond, as JD says, that 90 minutes, is that it is it is an inexhaustible uh, resource. We will keep going to the well and we will keep pushing it until um, um, that moment where the game really takes its rightful place in Australian society. And it'll happen because there's always going to be, you know, a JD or, or, or a Katie or somebody who will, you know, when, when guys like me do get a little bit exhausted, is there'll be people there that will take keep taking the game forward and keep pushing the cause so that uh, it can take, as I said, its its rightful place. And, and um, you know, from, from, from my perspective, I've always crazy as it seems and it sounds after what I've said. I've always been optimistic about the game. I've seen it um, I've seen it overcome the, the most enormous of, of challenges and, and I've seen that within individuals in the game but also the game itself and uh, you know, I've got no doubt that um, as we move forward at, at some point, I'm hoping in the very near future, within a generation anyway, we'll see the best version of, of, of our game and, and once that happens then you know, I think it'll it'll continue to flourish. And Ange, I have to ask you this. Sometimes I forget you're a uh, you're a football manager uh, in these kinds of uh, settings, and we've spoken about it previously. And I know you used to speak about it a lot to uh, the late Mike Cockrell. Is there any chance that you become an administrator one day? <laughs> no, look, so so this is where it comes down to, right? I I for a long time, and I think that's what in the end got me was that. That's where I saw myself. I wanted to be a sort of a, a vehicle for change and, and wherever that may sit, you know, as a, as a manager, administrator, whatever it was, I, I wanted to, to change because I I gained so much from the game and I thought I need I need this to, to go everywhere. I need other people to, to get what I have and, and the sacrifices that my parents made for me to have this wonderful life through the game. I wanted to share that. But in the end, trying to have... Both hats um, was 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 what got to me in the end. So, um, you know, I, I think I've found out that being the being a manager is is probably my my vehicle for for change. Um, I think people eventually get sick of me and what I have to say when I bang on about the same things. And and I think hopefully by the producing teams that, that play some some decent football, having some success that becomes the major cause that, that, that I can have in sort of giving the game a, a, a sort of positive future. He hasn't ruled it out, has he? <laughs> <laughs> you make that one, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Final words with you, JD. Hey, look, I, you know, it's really interesting you say that, Ange, because one of the things I was going to say is real transformative change happens on the pitch because by teams playing a certain way, by teams achieving certain things, by footballers conquering Everest, that's what really makes the exponential growth of the sport. So when, you know, a Sam Kerr emerges or an or a Harry Kuehl or a Mark Viduka emerge, that becomes a huge shift to the way we perceive the sport. So that's – we can never lose sight of that is what happens on that pitch. And that's why I think with you as the coach and what you've achieved – is exponentially more important than what any administrator might do. I mean, I think half the time an administrator just should be there to be a safe pair of hands and let the let the players and the coaches do their stuff. But I, I think that's ultimately where you can have these really huge leaps forward. It doesn't happen without all the stuff that happens, you know, on pitches around Australia every week, but that's where you have the real 
growth. But, you know, from my end, I just wanted to thank everyone who was a guest during the podcast series, particularly, you know, Ange, uh, Francis and Kate, who came in for a couple of sessions. So you're three people whose opinions I respect probably more than anyone else in the game. So thanks for coming in and sharing your your views. And I'm, I'm touched by the time everybody else took to, to be a guest. Ange, I've got no remorse dragging you back into this cesspit because I was on the receiving end of so many spankings by your Brisbane Raw team that this is my penance. I recall a 4-0 drubbing at Suncorp and getting hauled into the principal's office afterwards and go, how the hell did they beat you 4-0? Didn't you see the overlapping fullbacks? I haven't seen that before. You know, you hide Van Skip. He's meant to know this stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, you don't. So, so i got no remorse, mate. That This is totally a payback for all those thrashings that I was on the end of. Um, but finally, big thank you to David Davidovich and Richard Bayless for their outstanding stewardship of this through the whole process. So Dave wouldn't have worked without you and Rich Bayless uh, for his support from the outset. So, you know, hopefully the game can, you know, onwards and upwards. We love it. We live it. It's our life. And there's nothing more important to any of us than the sport. So hopefully, you know, we can start to mobilise the army that we need. Amen to that. Angie, anything to add to that? No, no, I mean, Jay, JD can take solace that he wasn't the only one. There was a few that got the spanking. But no, I've still got to explain my Aaron Moy decision to JD, so um, we've still got unfinished business. Here. Indeed. I think that's a standalone episode in itself. Series two. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, John Didlitzer, right back at you. It's been a pleasure to be alongside you for the 10 podcast episodes. Now, if you want to catch any of the other uh, nine podcasts, you can search Optus Sport Football Belongs on Spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcast. The essays are also available in the must-read section of the Optus Sport app. And also look out for the Optus Sport Football Belongs video series uh, resuming on April 14 all over Optus's digital platforms. Ange Postacoglu among the names to feature. Thanks again. It's been our pleasure recording this Football Belongs podcast series for you. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.